Hi, I'm Huntley Mitchell, news editor at BT, and welcome to the second instalment of Beneath the Brand. I'm again joined by Professor Carl Treacher, Group CEO of the Brand Institute, and also by Natalie Fian, Executive General Manager of Group Marketing at MYAB. Today, we're focusing on the cues and clues that lead to brand strategy and identity change. Carl, I know the Brand Institute specializes in evolving iconic brands, but what exactly does that mean? Look, what that means is that we work with uh, well-known organisations, brands that have a pre-established reputation that for some reason need to be recognised in a different way or change the way that people think and feel about them. Natalie, in your career, when have you recognised the need for significant brand change? It's been quite varied depending on where I've been working. Early in my career I worked for BMW and for Mini and there the global headquarters really manage the brand strategy for the company as a whole. And it's a really historic and it's a heritage brand really. Mm. So you don't mm. have that need I guess as frequently. Mm. Um, more recently I've worked at REA or realestate.com.au, worked with Carl on some projects there mm. and at MYOB. And as tech companies, I guess in both instances, there's been a need to reposition or rebrand probably more frequently. Mm. As a tech company, you're continuously innovating and changing, so the brand needs to come up, keep up with that. Mm. I think in both, in both those examples, uh, the point in time for those brands it was quite obvious. You know, that particularly for MYB, for instance, you know, it was a legacy brand. People knew it and loved it for certain things, but. The, the time for change was, was, was nigh, essentially, at that time. Absolutely. What are some of the more common things that indicate the need for a rebrand? I think the indicators are very broad in nature, but generally there's going to be a business problem that you're looking to solve, and a rebrand or a reposition um, is what the data or all the clients and, and all the information that you have um, leads you towards. So if I think of some of the common things, I guess often you pick up something, whether it's a sales problem and you're looking at the way that your client interacts. Um, it might be a change in the life cycle, it might be a change in the product, it might be a change in um, the customer data that you have about how, what they know about your brand, what they love. You might have seen a shift in customer loyalty. I think there's a whole gamut of reasons of why you might go to reposition or rebrand. Mm. Yeah, I think we, um, the more obvious things that we find are mergers and acquisitions, for instance. Um, or there's a, a big and huge change in strategy. You know, those sorts of things. When we're talking about a, a reposition that's more common and a refresh that's even more common, um, wholesale rebrand for us usually has to have some monumental commercial change that's been the um, catalyst. Absolutely, and I look at uh, Volkswagen or Malaysian Airlines and I've been fascinated watching those brands to see what they're going to do in yeah. the face of sort of disastrous PR and situations. Yeah. Um, and it's always fascinating watching those big brands to see what they do. Yeah, I think VW is a fantastic case study. I mean, they did essentially did nothing and relied on their existing brand equity and it's worked. I mean, that's I think that's the atypical example and more often than not with the poor PR that they had and continue to have around testing on live animals um, in, in their cabins, uh, you would normally see them look for a change in, um, in identity somehow. Absolutely, I've been quite surprised and I think they're lucky in some ways that they've been able to um, play to the strength and it really shows what, what strength and loyalty exists with the VW brand for them yeah. to be able to recover from things like this, not once but now twice. And what's the difference between a rebrand to say a reposition? A rebrand is a wholesale shift, you know, it's a large transformation that the organisation's decided to invest in. 
Um, the way that you recognize that is the first thing that consumers or customers or audiences would see is a change in a visual identity. So logo change, for instance. Now that's only the trigger to, to, for customers or any audience to assess the way that they view that organization and rethink about it. That's relatively rare. A reposition is essentially an expression of change in strategy. And that happens more often than not. And in fact, the way that we're working now and living our lives, repositions are happening all the time. And so they should be. I think to the point that you made, Carl, a rebrand is changing all of the elements of a brand because you're introducing something that is entirely new and shifting all of the emotive response towards a known or a new brand. Mm. Whereas a repositioning is changing an element. So if you think about the way that somebody feels about your mm. brand. Um, I look at it in terms of the businesses that I mentioned before where I've worked and I look at a business like realestate.com.au mm. where it was really about repositioning what REA was known mm. for beyond just buying and selling property into the full range of content that they deliver, which mm. is all around, you know, home decoration and renovations and mm. a lot of property data. So we wanted yeah. people to know the full range of content. So mm. that was really about repositioning. Mm. If I think about MYOB and mm. its challenges and our needs there, mm. that was a rebrand because people fundamentally had a historic view or almost an incorrect view of what MYOB is or was mm. as at this old, desktop accounting brand and we mm. needed to rebrand to help people understand that MYB is a technology company mm. that offers digital financial solutions. Yeah. Yeah, I think the, the marketing activity is also very interesting. Um, when we look at any sort of rebrand that either we've been involved in or that's, you know, making news, there's, um, there's new sort of greenfield thinking that is the headline. Whereas with repositioning, there's sustained campaign activity and it might be very different, but it's not so different that it's you know a refocusing um, activity you know so it's a have a rethink but don't reset absolutely yeah. what are the risks involved in a major brand identity or strategy change i mean the major risks are significant really aren't they you can waste a lot of money you can waste a lot of time you can do damage to your brand you can undo the good of your mm. brand the brand loyalty that you've got and i think that any rebrand or repositioning needs a lot of detailed thought, consideration and research before embarking on any of it. Mm. To do it properly and well, um, you want to be sure that you're doing it for the right reasons and that you've selected a rebrand or a repositioning and that, that is the solution to the problem. Mm. I think when we, uh, when, we look at, when we look over the course of time at some of the rebrands and reposition work we've done that have been successful and those that have struggled, um, you know, the ones that have struggled, there's a, there's a codependence that exists between the partner and the client. And so the relationship that we have is critical, um, along with the, the leadership and the culture of the organisation to embrace the new position and make sure that it's integrated into everyday activity. One of the things that I think we're seeing that's a major risk generally across all category is, I don't want to say laziness, but there is self-preservation that's that we're starting to see a lot of. So people are cruising and they're hiding. Now in the past, that would keep someone safe or a department safe. What keeps people safe now is demonstration of activity. So if we're in a rebrand or a reposition, which is a high activity exercise, those organisations and the departments and the individuals within those organisations that respond to that well and demonstrate that they're on board, they actually perform best. It's those that are slow on the uptake, slow on the draw, take their time, think it's gonna happen for them, that we see we really need to keep lighting the fire under them for that brand to perform. And I think 
I've experienced that a lot, where a brand project the size of repositioning or rebrand is successful. It's because it's viewed as a business strategy and it's embraced by the business. It's not just a marketing activity. Mm. And the success and a huge risk of any of those projects is when it's treated as something that's happening in the marketing department that mm. marketing look after mm. and we don't really need any involvement. Uh, you know, from my experience with you in with two brands, you've been very good at bringing the executive along on the, on the ride, obviously. Um, I thought I wouldn't want to ask you a couple of questions myself about that. How hard was that in both instances? And how'd you do it? So I think in both instances, there was a known need for some kind of change. And so the question really was, um, do we need to, what do we need to do from a marketing perspective in order to solve this problem? So then it really is, and I think for an executive group and even for the business, it's really thinking about what is the case that you're presenting and making sure that you've got the research. What is it that we want to be what is it that our clients want from us and what do we want from them? And bringing the whole story together. Um, and I think, you know, whilst there's always going to be people who are reluctant to change, it's a huge investment from a business perspective. It takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. I think if you can paint the picture, and as we did at REA um, and also at NYB, and especially spent the time with that executive group to get everybody on board and invested in it. So any of the nuances had been teased up, out, teased out up front, mm. rather than getting midway through the project and then having people saying, well, I'm not sure that we need to go that far mm. or I'm not sure that we need to do that. The requirements and the scope, we spent time on up front mm. and the part of the project in both cases that we probably then really moved quickly on was the delivery um, and the execution rather mm. than the thinking and cutting short on the research mm. and the buy-in and not only from the executive but from key employers, influences in the organisation and most importantly from the board. Yeah, you, um, you know, both, in both instances you had a very supportive culture in place um, and that culture, I know that whenever we work in rebrand or repositioning or any sort of brand work, we do it in three streams, brand, culture and experience design. Um, in both instances that, that you've referred to, the culture helped it succeed. Have you been involved in anything that, um, you know, whether you may have had the right idea and the market was pushing in one direction, but culturally or from a leadership perspective, it was more difficult? Yeah, look, I consider myself to be so lucky because I've worked in organisations where, as you say, there's been a hugely supportive board, executive, leaders that I've worked with, so it's been great. Mm. I guess the biggest example that I can draw upon in that instance is actually thinking back again to where you're working for a global company, where you're not able to make all of the big mm. decisions. So mm. if I think about launching the mini brand into Australia, for example, the strategy is really dictated by the team in Germany and mm. the global strategy team you're able to create a local execution of that and tailor it to your needs, but you're still working within the construct. And it's just much harder to influence mm. um, in those instances. But I'd say that's certainly a far more challenging scenario. Mm. And looking forward, I think I've determined for myself, for example, that I want to make sure that I'm always working for local brands where you can influence mm. and you can really impact the outcome. Yeah. Yeah, I think we had a similar, um, ex well, a similar but different experience with a merger of two pharmaceutical companies um, that were trying to bring two cultures together, neither of them particularly healthy, um, for, for, a common, for common good and a common cause. Um, the result of that was average at best. You know, the research was very um, suggestive to one particular path, 
uh, leader, leadership was on board, but the other elements of culture weren't supportive. So the end result was ongoing um, effort required um, to ensure that we actually got any sort of traction towards the objective. Such a, you know, trust in the organisation is such a huge part of culture. And I think especially for marketers, sometimes marketers is an area that's not necessarily understood. Mm. And so building the trust so that then the organisation will embrace whatever change and experience change that you're trying mm. to make is so important. So in some instances, one of the first steps is even if the overall, you know, culture of an organisation isn't healthy is how do you build the trust so that people will come on that journey with you? Yeah. Hey, here's a tricky one. So being external and being in, um, you know, in consultancy for 20 years, I don't actually get to make the decisions internally for the way the brand team or marketing teams, for instance, are um, perceived inside organisations. Quite often, they get bad press. The image of the, the marketing team is not as good as it could be or possibly should be. Um, I've got my own theories as to why that's the case, but I'd be keen to know your thoughts. I think there's two parts to that that are probably the things that I think about and talk about the most. One is, is I think um, as marketers you need to be very disciplined to get alignment on the objectives of any activity you're doing up front and then you always report back not just to the executives and the people around the table but to the business saying this is what we set out to achieve and this is what we delivered with mm -hmm. every even campaign that you do because too often people just see something, they'll see a piece of creative and they'll go, I don't really like that. Mm. But they're missing the whole point of what is it actually aiming to do? Mm. And then let's look at the results, good or bad. So mm. transparency is number one. Mm. I think the other one that you know I really um, abide to is I think marketers generally need to let go of what I call ta-da moments. Mm. So, and that is marketers working in a closed room on these secret projects mm. where, again, people don't understand the objectives, the thinking that's gone into it, the mm. preparation, so that you can have this launch and ta-da moment. Mm that people think, well, I don't really understand what that's about, I wasn't part of it, and mm. they feel like it's happening to them mm. rather than them being part of it because it's their organisation. Mm. So I think the more that marketers can let go of that ta-da moment to bring the organisation on the journey mm. with full transparency through the whole, pro through the whole process mm. um, is what builds that trust and mm. maybe helps with some of those traditional challenges where marketing maybe does have um, some challenges in reputation. Yeah, sure. Oh, I think the other thing that's very obvious working with you over a number of years is that you, in terms of risk aversion, you've got quite a high, um, you know, high tolerance for risk. You know, if you, if you can see the reward, you're prepared to put the effort in um, and assess the risks appropriately. From our perspective, consulting across various categories, there's different tolerances. So the brands that, that, we, um, that we've had our best results with, I suppose, as partners, are those that are prepared to take a bold, brave step into the unknown. And there is, look, there's research that surrounds that, but you never really know quite how it's gonna land, particularly the effect or the roll-on effect six months or a year down the track. Um, I think when we get to, to the organizations that struggle, and I think that's something that we always need to look at what, you know, what doesn't work as long as, as well as what works. The, if, we're gonna, if an organization is gonna face into a rebrand or a reposition in, in a wholehearted manner, they need to do so with a full understanding that there's going to be a, a, some intestinal fortitude required. You know, you're going to need to actually have those brave moments where they're prepared to stand up behind what it is that they're presenting. Absolutely, and that's why I've you know enjoyed the roles that I've had because it's been embraced by the organisation. I've had that support, but ultimately, again, it comes back to the business and the decision makers and the leaders 
thinking about if we follow the same path and we don't change, are we okay with that? And mm. the, do we know what the outcomes will be? Mm. And are we prepared to just follow the path that we've been following? Mm. And if the answer to that question is no, well then you have to be prepared to take the risks and make the changes to do the best job that you can. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if there's a, you know, very rarely is there sort of small incremental steps. If you know you need to change, yeah. you're gonna be better off making some pretty fundamental steps than trying to creep your way there. Yeah, I look at Maya, for instance, um, in, that, in that vein and, you know, the writing's been on the wall for a very long time that they need to change the way that they are experienced by their entire audience, entire audience group, um, and yet they haven't done it. You know, we, from our perspective as an external analyst and a, and a commentator, we really can't understand why. And, it, and there's actually been some uh, testbed solutions that's been placed in front of them that they haven't embarked on, they've basically just watched it slide off the cliff. And it's a great example of where repositioning doesn't work if it's not backed by the whole organisation and the experience. Mm. You know, my experience of Maya is spending a lot of money on the repositioning and the campaigns to take this new brand to market. Mm. But as soon as you walk into a Maya store, mm. I haven't seen much that's changed. Mm. So that experience, it's not delivering on the brand promise that was set out to be different. Yeah, and so it's a um, it's a mismatch of brand promise mm. and then brand experience. Are there any brands at present that you feel are right for change? Yeah, plenty. Yeah, you know, I think uh, every organisation always has their radar on at any given time to work out what the demand is and how they need to change in accordance with that. Um, I think at the moment, because experience design is the hot topic and, and as it should be. We're seeing customers and consumers in general being conditioned by uh, experiences that are well and truly out of a particular category. So what I mean by that is uh, if, we, uh, if you go into a retail environment, for instance, and they recognise you by name without you telling them, which is yet to happen in large part, that will then put a demand across every retail experience across all categories. So I think the formal way of assessing um, change, you know, some of the metrics that are in place are very important, but there needs to be the, the net needs to be cast further afield to be able to see what really needs to happen from a human conditioning perspective, because we're all going on one particular path um, around convenience and ease of use, and, and those that have better technological solutions that can help with that are going to then put pressure on the other organisations that aren't possibly at that place. So, Carl, I think what probably the audience want to know is to hear a couple of actual examples about brands that you think might be right for repositioning. Sure thing, you're first. Oh, I didn't realise that was going to be part of it. Um, look, my mind goes straight away to, I guess, businesses or categories that are in the public eye and in the press at the moment. Mm. So I immediately think of banks. Mm. Uh, I think there's huge opportunity for any of the banks, as has happened in different points in time, to break away from the mould and really present something that is different for clients. Mm. And then I look at even things, you know, in the category, even if I think about, t um, you know, TV, and I think about, you know, unfortunately the Today Show and the reputation of the brand of the Today Show has mm. been tarnished through the press. Firstly, through the pay equity piece and just the exit of Lisa, rightly or wrongly. Mm. Um, and then with the Uber incident um, that Carl had, I think the Today Show, in essence, is a declining audience or an audience that's struggling to compete against Sunrise now. And so surely the people at Channel 9 or the executives around the table thinking about the Today Show will be thinking mm. about how do we 
represent and reposition what the Today Show values and mm. what our experience is and how are we different from mm. our competitors and mm. how do we bring that loyalty back and the love for the Today Show. Mm. I think that's probably on the top of their mind as well. You, you, um, you look at their competitor, which appeals to one particular audience, and you know, I think the Today Show, whilst it has this, the faults and the, the media issues that you've mentioned, there's something a little bit more uh, poignant or a little bit more hard-hitting to the Today way of reporting on news than there is for Sunrise. For me personally, Sunrise, it's just so vanilla that I can't, oh, I don't watch it anyway, but if I was to watch it, you know, I'd, I'd question my choices in life. Um, in, in, in terms of uh, my views of an example, I think Cricket Australia is a great one. It is a great one. Uh, and that's, it's not, it's not a, a surprise to anyone. Uh, and what's led to this, which is the part that I find most fascinating, is not necessarily the act, you know, the, what happened there in terms of the ball tampering incident was an incident. It was from the moment that Cricket Australia decided that they would throw the captain and the vice captain under the bus as part of the activity. That was the moment in time when they've made the decision already that they have a massive brand problem that they need to investigate and then shift. So do you think they created that brand problem? Yeah, I do, I do think that. I think from the moment that this Cricket Australia, if it was Cricket Australia that was calling the shots, and I imagine it was, decided to throw Steve Smith and Dave Warner under the bus with the bowler, then you got a big, big problem. There was a completely different path they could have gone down where there's already precedence of ball tampering with very lenient repercussions. Instead, the decision they made has now put the entire brand of Cricket Australia and Cricket in Australia under the microscope and under a very, very poor light. And for those two players, Steve Smith and Dave Warner, their careers are now will never be the same based on that decision. Yeah, I think for most of that team, they'll never be the same. Yeah. I was trying to think of an example, perhaps where a brand had recovered quite well mm. in contrast to that. And I think, you know, if you think about VW as a, an example mm. again, where you've had a huge crisis and PR crisis, um, but you've lent on the strength of the brand, you've been open in your communication and probably took their time mm. to manage it well. Um, and have been able to maintain themselves and, and I guess see that, kind of ride that through. Yeah, I think that's, that's, a, um, that's, a, that's a good example. A more, uh, more underhanded example is probably anything that the NRL does. You know, the NRL or um, uh, Essendon Football Club in the drug scandal. Essendon Football Club, they handled that, it's arguable whether that was handled particularly well. It was a very big issue and it went on for a long time. But we're now a few years down the track and there's still Essendon supporters down there happily, proudly supporting their team. In NRL, those players get up to all sorts of nasty business and so a few months later, if not six months later or next season, all is forgiven. There's a couple of players in particular, one for the Sydney Roosters, who would do all sorts of terrible things and was eventually dismissed, but the, that was managed in a way that the equity was so strong for the NRL and for that team that they got away with it. I'm not saying that's the right thing either. I'm just saying it's a very fascinating observation of brand equity in play. It is and shows the importance of how it is managed and the vast difference in the outcome mm. based on the decisions that are made very quickly um, and longer term in terms of managing those crises as mm. well. So. Mm. I think it also speaks to the way that brands interact with their audiences. So some brands have customers, some have clients and some have members. 
And I'm always surprised at the brands that take too long to move into a membership model. You know, the brands that we've worked with over the last 20 years that have members experience much better loyalty, they're forgiven when, they've, when there's a, an issue or for, in particular fall from grace, whether it be media or experiential. They've got the possibility to have greater line extensions because they've got such strong equity. I think you know, Virgin's a great example of that. Some of the health insurance companies that are behaving themselves well are a good example. And why do you think that is? Do you think it's once somebody is a member, there's something psychological about the fact that you've committed and aligned yourself to that brand? So therefore you're going to more easily, almost for your own personal brand <laughs> and justify, you're going to justify the actions and look at the good in that brand because you have aligned yourself with it? Yeah, totally. What is it? No, it's, it's, it's you've got to get back to the human condition for this. And that is that we, we as humans love a sense of belonging and we're tribal animals. So if we've made a decision, it's not necessarily pride, it can, pride can play into it, that we're not really wanting to admit that something you know, is not as good as it could be, but if we've decided that we're gonna allow, align our value set to a particular organization, that's more than just buying something transactionally. That's something that says, this company and this brand is now part of my identity and I'm part of theirs. So kids in, the, kids in the street aren't going to stop playing street cricket with street cricket with a baggy green cap on because of the actions of two cricketers. Because they're members of a local club, they're members of the entire cricketing genre, and that's part of their identity and part of their tribe. And I think when we start extrapolating that out into corporate entities, there's a lot of opportunity there. You know, we're still at a large, large part talking about customers of brands. Where and loyalty programs that are just so transparent for what they are. There's real so significant opportunities for brands that are in a what I'd call a clone category, where they're not seen as different, to differentiate by through experience and having membership as part of that. And do you think some of the, for example, some of the credit unions, for example, or you know, whether you look at the teachers' credit union yep. or um, some of the banks and some of the breakaway yeah, that are saying, "Come and be a member. We're here for you. Yeah. We're here for the people. Yeah, be part of our business." Completely. Yeah, and, just be and we're not we're not starved of exemplar case studies. You know, we're not starved of great examples of who does this well. Umqua Bank in the states, a fantastic example, built by a community of members. Um, Bendigo Bank in Australia, you know enjoys great support because of the way that it presents itself. Um, Virgin Mobile did that for, for a time. It was a very successful strategy. It wasn't a sustained, sustained strategy, but they differentiated from you know, being a very small player in the telco market from their larger competitors because they offered membership and they could then leverage the other franchise, the other Virgin franchises for a sort of economy of scale benefit. Natalie, you've been the top marketing spot for two of Australia's leading tech companies. How do these brands differ from traditional, conventional companies in terms of brand performance? So I think ultimately the same brand principles always apply regardless of the company in terms of the way that clients and you know, we as consumers interact with and choose brands to deal with. I think the main difference probably working with a technology company is twofold. One is, is that technology companies need to be continuously innovative and so you're continuously evolving. So the pace at which the experience um, and the brand needs to change is far more rapid than perhaps a conventional and traditional brand. You know, your cereal box and the type of cereal that you want to eat, you don't want that to change every week. Um, you want an app or a technology service that you're providing to be staying up to date and giving you new experiences all the time. So there's some fundamentals there. 
I think the other difference with a technology and sort of a service brand as well is, and we see this play out across um, content through newspapers as well as the likes of NYB or um, realestate.com.au, is the fragmentation of the usage. Um, if you think about the content that we read, for example, in a newspaper, um, you know, you use an app for your newsfeed or your newsfeed comes through Facebook. So you're less and less familiar with where that content has actually been created and sourced. So if you are the creator of that content working at news or you're working at realestate.com.au and you're using content to bring in all of these new audiences, you've got to make sure that people, you can build your brand equity by bringing people back to your base, your home, your app. And so I think that's probably the key challenge is making sure that your brand is still top of mind even when the experience is presented within somebody else's environment like a Facebook or within another app. Mm. Carl, the Brand Institute rebranded the ACCC last year and has helped a host of other iconic companies evolve. Is there anything you're doing exciting at the moment? Look, we're always doing something exciting in, in my mind. Uh, we have a host of clients, some of them that are doing some groundbreaking work and others that we're just trying to make sure that they are positioning themselves as best they can. I can't obviously talk about strategy of any of those clients, but one in particular that's close to my heart or is personal favourite is RACQ at the moment. They've gone through a very successful acquisition and they're a loved brand. You know, in Queenslanders, it's, it's almost a very unique environment that they're a, a brand that their members love and trust and look forward to seeing what comes from any sort of development. I think all of our clients are interesting, are interesting I should say, um, from my perspective because they take into consideration the nuances of the relationship with their customer and that's essentially why we work with them. You know, MPS and customer satisfaction doesn't give them what we need to do the job which is why do they choose you? How do they want to interact with you? What is it that makes you special? So that when we talk about repositioning them or changing that relationship, we're very clear on what the platform is and the foundations are from which to build on. Natalie, what can we expect to see from MYAB in the immediate future from a branding perspective? And how is it competing with Zero? So in terms of our rebranding journey, I think it's always really important, and I talk a lot about this internally, is that rebranding and repositioning often takes a very long time. So we have been through a huge rebrand project um, that launched into market um, probably a little less than a year ago, I think. Um, and so for us, it's continuing to embed those messages and embed the experiences for our new clients. And so we can't, and I don't want to move away from that too quickly because you need to make sure that these things are embedded and they have the time. What we'll continue to see from NYOB is broadening our positioning from a desktop old school computing and accounting brand mm. to demonstrating to the market that MYOB is Australia's, you know, really original startup, uh, original tech startup company that was created 20 years ago mm. is a huge success story. And the fact that we've got the largest range of products and digital services that most people don't even know that we've got. Mm. And so in the first instance, it's about saying we are a tech company who has, and then the second part is then bringing in all of the proof points about the range of the services that we can offer, not only to small businesses, but also to accountants, to bookkeepers, and then right through to really big businesses through payroll, HR, etc. Mm. From our perspective, from our perspective, one of the, the things that really helped us support MYB through that change, and then also another, another client that we're working with currently, which is a university, is that there was there was a, a wonderful story that wasn't being told. 
And so finding those, those elements of social proof and truths that we could find an interesting, compelling and persuasive way to reposition so that it educated the market and built great affinity between the brand and their customers, it really just laid the foundations for success. And it's such an exciting time, both internally and externally. I think, you know, coming up, especially for MYOB, and I think about the rebrand project that we've been through, you know, we defined MYOB about, as a business that is passionate about simplifying success for other organisations, startups and other companies. Mm. And now that everybody in the organisation is able to embrace that, we're doing fantastic work out in the startup community and those people are loving the experiences mm. that they're having with MYB. Mm. We're really able to demonstrate how we can simplify business using technology in the elements that most business owners don't really care about and they don't want to do in terms of the bookkeeping and everything. So again, it is deciding what the brand stands for, what your brand promise is going to be, and then delivering that experience. And the delivery of the experience is the really exciting part. Mm. But the risk, I think, for a lot of companies, and Carl will be interesting to know if you've seen this, is that the business abandons some of those experiences before they really had time to embed themselves in market mm. and to create that um, experience and therefore the loyalty with your clients and, and customers. Yes, I'd be interested to know from your experience, mm. um, but whether you see organisations go through a rebrand or a reposition and mm. kind of abandon it before it's had time, or mm. the, the time that it needs and deserves, yeah. really. I think the reasons for abandoning some of the new elements, uh, there's many reasons for that. One is the broader uh, organisation often doesn't understand the time required to embed new, new um, stimulus. It's going to change behaviour. And so they'll see it as a campaign and they're a little bit conditioned to campaigns lasting however long. One thing I did want to discuss though with, with regard to MYB in particular is we talk about logo development and visual identity, you know, um, you know, logos coming to market and the development of VI and other elements. And sometimes that's sort of the, the cherry on top of obviously a large piece of strategy that's going to drive growth for the organisation. In MYB's example, you wouldn't have got the traction you're getting now with startups if you'd gone to market with your former visual identity. Yeah, and, and I think again, if we break it down to looking at the business problem, you know, what the business problem was is that consumers and our clients didn't really know what we offered. Mm. They had a fixed mindset about who MYOB was and what it provided mm. that was completely outdated. And so the need to rebrand then is clear because you're creating a visual trigger for people to reconsider what your business is about. If you are familiar with a brand and, and people were familiar with MYB, mm. they'd see something from MYB and you almost switch off. Mm. I don't need to hear those messages. I already know what MYB does. Mm. They're that accounting brand. Mm. It's not until you change all of the visual and create that impact of the visual change to interrupt people's thoughts mm. Mm. and give them a reason to listen and to reconsider what that mindset is and mm. to relearn, to be open to relearning a message about what that brand and in our case MYB is all about mm. but that still takes time and it, I'm always fascinated that people go people you know you hear people say oh yeah I heard oh MYB you've got that new logo mm. and then it's not until a little bit further oh I didn't realize that MYB was such a big oh I didn't mm. realize that MYB did this yeah and it is a journey and it takes a lot of time I think there's a very different experience internally and externally through a rebrand. So internally it seems like a huge amount of change very quickly and people can get on board. Externally it takes so much longer you know, for that to happen and the research that we did in preparation for the MYB rebrand 
told a very conclusive story around what needed to happen. You know, to your point, there was a, a very strong understanding around what MIB was, and that was, you know, accounting packages that essentially you could pick up at Officeworks or um, that came in a disk format that helped you, if you're a small business, do your accounting. Back to my point around, it was wonderful to open the, look under the hood and see all the things that MYB actually was, which was a world-class tech organisation with a plethora of offerings to small, through small business through the enterprise that we started to understand the potential for that brand. Absolutely, and I think the really interesting part for me was looking at, um, you know, if you look at the consumer research and the perception overall was that MYOB had been disrupted by Zero as our main competitor, therefore MYOB must not offer anything that is comparative to Zero, mm. And so that's been a huge education piece that's ongoing in the mm. market mm. To, to say, well, actually, we've got a broader range and a deeper range of products that can help businesses succeed. Mm. But once that mindset, and this is where, you know, we often have the debate, and I'm sure I've had it with you, Carl, before, is, is it easier to launch a new brand into market yeah. or to reposition or to rebrand? Yeah. And, you know, they are equally as challenging and hard. But I think changing people's perception about an existing brand, especially one that is so well known, mm. is, a, is a huge challenge mm. and a huge undertaking for an organisation. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's where we spend our time. You know, I, in some ways I, I wish I'd go back 20 years and we just launched new brands, because in some ways that would be easier. And I think the work that Zero did in being the disruptor was actually very good early on, and the way MYB's responded has been excellent. Um, particularly when we get to the heart of what people want from their accounting software. Do you want it to look beautiful or do you want it to do a great job and simplify your success? I mean, that's a, a controversial statement I'm sure you've got a view on and Zero would have a counter position on, but um, and I found that a very interesting, interesting um, project to work on. It wasn't just shows the consumer insight that goes into and the level of thinking that goes into all of the positioning work and the rebrands that happen and I think again if we think about the role of the marketing department is again that can be hugely underestimated at the time it's just the level of detail thought and research that does go into all of those seemingly um, sometimes small but also very big decisions and mm. the ultimate impact that they can have for an organisation mm. um, is well beyond what many people think. Mm. Last question, and it's for both of you. What do you think would help the performance of brands that have either rebranded, repositioned, or refreshed? Uh, look, Huntley, if, if by that you, you mean are there any tips and tricks, I suppose, for companies thinking of rebranding, uh, certainly is. You, know, you can't go past great leadership, aligned culture, and very clear communication. I think the first thing organisations need to assess when they're facing into a rebrand is, do I have those three pillars ready to go? Is there anything I need to do to make sure they're performing optimally um, before I embark on you know, doing too much else? Now to be keen on your thoughts. Just stole my response. Huh. Look, I think your point around alignment from leadership up front is just so critical. And again, it's about aligning on the objectives. So really making sure that everybody is clear about what is the problem that we are trying to solve here and making sure that everybody is aligned and bought in to the same proposal of then what is to happen. Because I think all of us have a tendency to sort of think, oh, well, what I'm hoping that we'll get out of this might just be slightly nuanced and slightly mm. different. Mm. And that's where the problem lies, because then you get to the end of it and you said, it, does, it, does, it did this. Mm. And somebody says, well, I wanted it to do this. Mm. So I think the clearer that you can be about your objectives up front and getting that alignment, I think the second part that you touched on as well is not only great leadership 
Um, I phrase this as it needs to be a business initiative, not a marketing initiative. Mm. So any brand reposition, refresh um, or rebrand needs to be a business priority, not a marketing priority. Mm. And for that reason, it shouldn't be run independently just by marketing alone. It should be run and involve people from right across the organisation, mm. not just your leaders, mm. um, but have input from you know all sorts of people from the organisation and, of course, most importantly, clients and future clients. Mm. Yeah, the, um, the the better the better examples or experiences that we've had have always involved the executive team, where certainly marketing is front and centre and they've got their feet under the table, but they're not pitching ideas in to the executive. The executive together are working closely to make sure that they're all moving in alignment moving forward. And, and marketing not doing it in isolation. You know, mm. that marketing's not locked away in a room somewhere mm. working out this strategy and what's all going to happen. It's got to be a business initiative that's mm. led by led by marketing, um, but with input and support from the whole organisation. I'm often fascinated that the um, there's reluctance from the marketers to involve the executive when the output of this is actually a much better profile for them personally and for the marketing department. In every instance they get to demonstrate their chops and their ability to, to understand business issues and then to apply that to the way that they're communicating with the market. And look that comes back to a broader leadership discussion and that is about organisational culture and the individuals in that culture they're thinking about the best interests for them and their profile and their career, or are they really there for the good of the organisation mm. and thinking through the best solution to the business problem mm. and always putting the business first, um, not the individual profile or department. Mm. And I think that's where some progressive organisations and great organisations with great CEOs like REA and MYAB especially um, have done really well because you've got great people leading them who are um, setting a great example for everybody to be involved with these types of projects. Mm. Alright, well Carl, Natalie, thank you so much for sharing some real words of wisdom. I'm Huntley Mitchell from B&T and thank you very much for tuning in to Beneath the Brand. See you next time.